It's Friday, September 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A bill rewriting California employment law has been sent to the desk of Governor Gavin Newsom. This law could have far-reaching effects in reclassifying independent contractors as employees and could potentially change the business models of gig economy companies like Uber and Lyft. Alejandro Lazo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this bill could impact business and also what changes may come to workers. Next, a CIA informant has been extracted from Russia and is now presumed to be living in the Washington, D.C. area. This informant had been sending secrets to the U.S. for decades and was instrumental in providing intelligence that Vladimir Putin had personally ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the presidential election. Adam Ronsley, reporter for The Daily Beast, joins us for what we know about this spy, what to expect when you defect from a country, and also what happened when The Daily Beast visited the home of the suspected CIA spy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Something that we need to move forward in order to give certainty to businesses in California, to give certainty to the workers that are, we seek to protect, and certainty to taxpayers that they're no longer going to be on the hook for industries and for big businesses that refuse to adequately pay their workers. Joining us now is Alejandro Lazo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, based in San Francisco, covering California politics. Thanks for joining us, Alejandro. Hey, Oscar. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about this new bill that was just passed awaiting the California governor's signature. And this is a sweeping bill that would reclassify contractors as employees. This is a bill mostly aimed at like Uber and Lyft and people who rely on workers in this gig economy, although this might have wide-reaching effects into other industries as well, construction, healthcare, janitorial services, adult entertainment even, (laughs) but even broader impacts beyond that. You know, when big bills get passed in California, the country looks at these and uses it as a model. So with the passage of this bill, this could impact the entire country Tell us a little bit about this bill and this fight to reclassify workers as employees. I think that's a really good summary. And while Uber and Lyft and some of the other so-called gig economy companies have gotten a lot of attention because they're the ones who've been kind of loudest and then sort of really making the most visible efforts to gain an exemption from this bill, you're right. There's a ton of industries here in California that will likely be affected from trucking to janitorial services, as you were saying. What the intention of the bill was, was to really just take aim at this phenomenon that's kind of arisen in the modern workplace work environment. And that's just the rise of contractors doing what employees had done formerly. And that was exactly what was taken aim at with this measure. Now, obviously, this has big impacts for companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and just a number of these so-called gig economies that have kind of grown up and come of age over the last decade or less here in California, and particularly where I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, they're all kind of headquartered around here, based around here, and have kind of gotten their start around here. And they say that they work off of the app, you know, when they want to, and they are not employees of the company. And these companies say this will have a big 
make change for those drivers, for those workers, as well as for the business models of these companies. Right. And that's one of the big arguments from Uber and Lyft is that it would really change their whole business model. The company and the drivers both say that they do like the flexibility of picking and choosing when they want to work, when they want to take rides. And one of the main things that the big companies have been saying is that with the passage of this bill, they might have to start instituting shifts. You know, you can only drive at this time. You have to drive in a certain area and you lose that little bit of flexibility. I think Lyft specifically already started telling workers that these changes might be coming. And they're saying that a lot of their drivers just might not be able to do it. A lot of their, I think they said 91% of their drivers drive fewer than 20 hours and they're thinking they're going to lose a lot of those people. Lyft in particular has sent out that warning to its drivers. Now, Uber has taken a different stand. They are saying that we don't believe that this law really changes anything, that we do not have a classification issue, even under this new law that will, uh, calling it a law because the governor has intended to sign it. And if everything kind of goes as you know, the political actors in Sacramento have indicated that things will go, this bill will become a law. And Uber has said, hey, look, we don't think this changes anything for us We're just going to deal with this in the courts and through arbitration. If somebody says we've misclassified a driver, we're just going to deal with that, but we're not changing anything. I think anyone who's familiar with the company would probably recognize that this is a familiar approach for the company just to sort of move forward with its business. Under this bill, workers are likely to be classified employees if the company directs their tasks and the work is part of the company's main business. So I know already Uber said, well, our main business is not necessarily driving. Our main business is providing this marketplace. So they're going to use a lot of clever wording to get around this in the meantime. And as you said, they're going to go through arbitration. They're going to go through all sorts of other avenues to really fight this. So it's going to be really interesting to see. The governor has said that he does want to sign this, but is still open to negotiations and maybe offer some more exemptions if the companies give more exceptions or or, or things like that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens once this passes and then how other states react to this. And they're going to want to implement this. There's religious groups that's saying that they might not be able to keep their priests or rabbis on the payroll because of this bill. Uh, There's a lot of far reaching implications for this, but just based off of working on the story, how do the drivers feel about this? I've been seeing that they're pretty split You know, I I was covering a lot of legislation in Sacramento. So the people that showed up to voice their opinion, you know, on the political process while this bill was coming together were those who were organized and in support of it. These are the folks that do want the status of being an employee. Now, both of the companies, Uber and Lyft, have told us that there are plenty of drivers who like the flexibility, as they say, of being an independent contractor. And I will say that I've certainly heard from drivers who have reached out to me and they've said exactly that. Like, I do enjoy my flexibility. I do think this bill is bad. And obviously, there's no way really to pull, I think, individual drivers. But certainly, there appears to be a split, which is, you know, as you would imagine, natural. (laughs) Even anecdotally, just getting into an Uber or Lyft, I usually tend to talk to the drivers and kind of ask them some of these questions. And same thing. I just hear it on both sides. They want some more protections, but they do really love that flexibility and 
picking up and working and not working whenever they want. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see the way this whole thing develops. Alejandro Lazo, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. A source like this does not grow on trees. In the world of intelligence, you don't have a thousand people who surround Putin and who get, you know, um, access to what he's thinking, what he's telling people on a daily basis. The loss of someone like this is, is I think the word the Times used is blinding. And uh, it's going to be very, very hard to try and find another person. Joining us now is Adam Ronsley, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Hi, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about a very interesting story about this CIA spy in Russia who was extracted out of there, brought to the United States after his cover wasn't necessarily blown, but there was a lot of intense scrutiny around the area after reports in the U.S. started saying that Vladimir Putin was directing a campaign to interfere with the 2016 election. And the CNN reported on this story earlier this week. A bunch of news outlets started reporting on this about how this spy had to be taken out of Russia for fear of his safety. Tell us a little bit about this story. So CNN first broke the story that tied really the biography of this spy together in terms of his relationship with U.S. intelligence. But we had had hints ever since the 2016 election interference from Russia that the CIA did have a top spy somewhere in Russia. Because if you go back to the New York Times, you can see a sentence here, a sentence there, where there's reference that the CIA had someone who was telling them what Putin was thinking, what he was hoping for as part of the goal of election interference. And then earlier this week, CNN reported that that spy was exfiltrated from Russia in 2017 because of growing fears about his security. There's a bit of a debate about exactly what they were afraid of in terms of security. CNN highlighted the fact that uh, Trump had a penchant to blurt out things in meetings with Russians. He blurted out some very sensitive ISIS intelligence in May of 2017, shortly before the spy was extricated. But as you can tell from the reporting prior to CNN's story, there were a lot of questions being pressed to the CIA. There was a report of a top spy. And I think the thinking was, at least among some people, is that Russia might start a mole hunt and try and figure out what's behind all these U.S. stories. Either way, the U.S. got him out in 2017. They say that this uh, person wasn't directly inside Mr. Putin's inner circle but did see him regularly and had access to high-level Kremlin decision-making. The Kremlin, for their part now, is on overdrive trying to paint this guy as a boozy nobody, somebody that liked to drink, really didn't have access to Vladimir Putin, and didn't see him or interact with him at all, basically. The person the Russians are referring to is we have not confirmed who the identity is of the Russian official. Right who the CIA says they recruited. What happened was earlier this week, the same day the CNN story hit, Russian media started recirculating a 2017 tabloid story about a Russian official who disappeared from Russia in 2017 during a vacation to Montenegro. That official was reportedly a diplomat in the United States, at, posted at the Russian embassy in the US, and then worked in the Russian presidential administration. That official went on a vacation to Montenegro and had not been seen since, Russia, according to the tabloid article, opened up a criminal case. That official was married to a woman who was also previously married. It's a little bit complicated, but basically his stepson's biological father has since come forward today to say, yes, 
my wife, who now lives with this or who you know married this official, took my kid away during a vacation to Montenegro, and I haven't seen them since. The Russian government has come out, Putin's spokesman has come out, and the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, have come out and said that the official mentioned in this tabloid report did not have direct access to Putin, which I don't think was actually really alleged by the New York Times or CNN, only that he had access to information about what Putin was saying, and that he was a drinker and that he was a nobody. The former KGB handler of Robert Hansen, who was an FBI spy, gave an interview today. It was translated by Medusa, which is a really good translation outlet doubting that this individual could have been a spy as described by the New York Times. It's all perfectly clear as mud, but the Russians are very much trying to say that, no, 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 we didn't have a spy. We don't have any spy problems. (laughs) This individual was drunk. He was not senior, yada, yada, yada. But that individual has not popped up to clear the record. I mean, you said it's a complicated story, but what spy story is it really, right? So (laughs) so, uh, that's what makes this stuff so interesting. And, you know, as far as reporting goes, this CIA informant was providing secrets to the U.S. for decades. They cultivated him to kind of grow within the ranks there. It was a recruitment in place, basically, is that the ideal situation is not for you to hop out and come to the United States because then your access to secret ends. The ideal thing is to have someone in place a long time who can pass you things, who can give you information over time. And one of the things that CIA officials have reportedly complained about to places like The New York Times and CNN is that a source like this does not grow on trees. In the world of intelligence, you don't have a thousand people who surround Putin and who get access to what he's thinking and what he's telling people on a daily basis. The loss of someone like this, I think the word the Times used is blinding. And it's going to be very, very hard to try and find another person, particularly because uh, they're going to be that much more cautious. Yeah. And, and it's really important, the type of information that he was providing, too, because for a long time, our intelligence officials have been saying that Russia was operating on an influence campaign in 2016. They're saying that Mr. Putin personally ordered this influence campaign. And a lot of this was resting off of this informants information. If that's not true, then that kind of blows all the intelligence out of the water. So the importance of how accurate this stuff was and whether he was a spy for us is is really important. And there was some concerns because when they said, hey, you got to come out now, apparently he resisted for family reasons. And that's not terribly unheard of. Put yourself in that situation. Do you want to leave your country and then go to another country where you can't see your extended family, where maybe you don't know if you're going to be able to bring your immediate family, where you have to live in fear for the rest of your life? Because we know the Russians have a nasty habit of tracking down former defectors even after they've left and attempting to, or in some cases, actually assassinating them. And so his hesitance to defect and leave the country led a lot of folks to wonder if maybe he had been feeding them some junk, if he was a double agent, if he was secretly being run by the Russians or had been turned. But, you know, the family issues are not terribly unheard of. We've seen that before. The CIA recruited an Iranian scientist, Karam Amiri, who's a nuclear scientist, And they got him out of Iran during a pilgrimage to Mecca, and they brought him to Arizona, and they gave him $5 million, which is, you know, a a not bad little nest egg there. And he really missed his family because they couldn't get his family to go out with him. And he reportedly was calling his son all the time. And as a result, he ended up redefecting and going back, and he ended up being hung by the Iranian government. I think he thought that claiming to have been kidnapped by the CIA would get him some mercy. But the same thing happened with KGB colonel in the 1980s, like Yurchenko, who was KGB colonel who came over in Rome. We brought him back to the U.S. He had been having an affair with a KGB secretary, 
and wanted her to come live with him in his new life in America. But when he asked her to come with him, she didn't want to go. And he ended up redefecting as well. So it's not terribly unheard of yeah. that you would have family issues and, you know, your family being a pull making you not want to defect. But And it makes total sense. I mean, whether you're a spy or not, you are in these areas for years and years and years. You put down roots. You get a sense of normalcy outside of the official job. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that's hard to let go. And it's a big adjustment. It's And it's not, you know, it's not just something with Russians. We see this. In North Korea, you have defectors come over all the time into South Korea. They have trouble adjusting to the new way of life. And there's an entire office of the CIA that handles these issues, that deals with the psychology of resettlement. And when do you broach the issue of money? Because you don't want it to seem too transactional. You want to show your appreciation for them, but you don't want to make them feel like a cheap mercenary. It's very complicated and adjustment is very difficult, as you might imagine. So right now where we're at with this whole thing is the word is that this Russian CIA informant is living somewhere in the Washington area. And as the media does, they want to know who this person is. They want to know more and more that they can on this story there at the Daily Beast, you guys had a reporter go out to a residence in the Washington area suspected, I guess, to be this person. What did they find when they got there? So early Monday, we saw the news about the former Russian official who had left and gone missing. And we did a quick public records search. And <laughs> to our shock and amazement, we found some records that indicated that a former Russian official might be living in the United States under his own name. And so my colleague, Lachlan Marquet, uh, hopped in a car and drove to a residence. And once he got to the residence that we had found through public records, he knocked on the door and a large car with two very intimidating looking gentlemen came up to him and took pictures of him, waved at him and drove off. There was an unusual amount of traffic driving by him and, and getting a good look at him. And uh, then we, Lachlan went to speak to some of the neighbors and the neighbors confirmed a lot of the details that the person that we had gone looking for was very much similar to the person who lived at that residence and that the house was very expensive. And when they asked the homeowner what he did for a living, he said he didn't have a job, which is a little bit strange given that he had just recently moved into a very expensive house right. and they had kept it to themselves. They were friendly. They had gone to a 4th of July barbecue with the neighbors. The wife didn't have a very great command of English. But yeah, it was, it was definitely one of the weirder experiences we've had um, reporting things at the database. Wow, that is a crazy story. Okay, last question I have. How scared was your colleague when these guys pulled up in this SUV? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if he was scared. I, I, I don't know, but like, uh, I, I can tell you, <laughs> he first got there and there were two very angry looking dogs there. And when he first told me, we were like, uh, yeah, I don't know what's next. Uh, and I, I very quickly had to research loitering laws right, right. <laughs> and whether or not he had a right to be there because we didn't know. Oh, man. I don't know. We didn't know. It was, it was all just less scared and more sort of weirded out. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll start getting some more news about this because everybody's so interested in these stories. So we'll just keep waiting to hear if anything else develops on this. Adam Ronsley, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.